a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. I was recently reading a poll that was done by the Pew Research Center that I was kind of staggered by what I found out. And it was a poll that asked people, uh, do you support the government preventing people from saying things that are offensive about minority groups? So it was a poll about whether the government could censor speech. And what was stunning to me is that the millennial generation, people ages 18 to 34, were almost four times as likely as older Americans, people over the age of uh, 70, to support government censorship. And of course, the kind of idea you have in your head is young people are always telling truth to power and old people are always shutting them down. And of course, this sort of suggests that the two groups have very different views about censorship and the government's role in the First Amendment. And who better to discuss these issues with than our colleague Michael McConnell? Michael is a professor of law at Stanford Law School. He's the director of the Supreme uh, of the Constitutional Law Center. He used to be a federal court of appeals judge on the Tenth Circuit, and he is one of the most knowledgeable people about the First Amendment, free speech, freedom of religion, and the like in the entire country. And as you're going to find out, he's just delightful to talk to. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. With that kind of an introduction, I'm a little scared to be here. (laughs) Michael, Pam kind of organized this as people of our generation and older valuing kind of nonconformity and and saying something shocking and maybe hurtful in a younger generation, not so – let's move it to the campus now. And can you give us some background? What's the law about speech on campus? Well, the First Amendment applies to public university campuses the same way it applies to the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean absolute free speech, though. Some people think, oh, you know, if First Amendment applies, that means it's the Wild West for what what you can say. Actually, the free speech clause everywhere, not just on college campuses, but everywhere, is sensitive to context. So, for example, a classroom is not a forum for freedom of expression. If you're in chemistry class, it doesn't mean you can start talking about your favorite rappers. It is true that certain principles of free speech apply even in the classroom but they're limited. Out on the streets of the campus, on the other hand, it's going to be much more like a city street. The dorms are going to be treated in a, in a particular way, but public universities are government units just like the city police department. And there's this weird thing in California because as you were pointing out, it's the government that usually can't censor you. So generally, if you're a private individual, you're free to use your property the way you want and say, I don't want people to come onto, into my backyard and play a concert. I don't want people to come onto my front steps and talk to me about their favorite issues or the like. In California, there's a kind of different rule for universities than for almost any other private actor, isn't there? That's right. And California is the only state that has such a law. It's called the Leonard Law. It was passed in, I believe, 1972, and it provides that colleges and universities, whether private or public, are subject to the same uh, First Amendment rules with respect to rules that, when enforced, would result in the discipline of students. Yeah, so it's a kind of interesting rule, right? It it gives students on a campus First Amendment protections. It doesn't give faculty on those campuses First Amendment protections 
protections, doesn't give people who come onto the campus. I, I often walk across our campus and there are these sort of strange people speaking in the middle of White Plaza and they don't have the kind of First Amendment rights students have, right? That's right. And indeed, students don't have, at least under the Leonard Law at a private university, their free speech rights only pertain to disciplinary actions. There are all kinds of things. In fact, what I would say is that some of the more important free speech issues on most campuses are not about disciplinary procedures but about other things that universities do. At a university, is there an especial value to free speech or is it just the same as everywhere else? I mean, how, how do you think about free speech on campus? So this isn't a legal question. This is yes. a cultural or pedagogical question, but we're all professors and so we care about this. For universities like Stanford or a public university, I think we do believe that the university has a special obligation to foster, not just to tolerate, but to foster a freedom of speech and an exchange of ideas. That's not so of every private university. We do have and should have, uh, and I'm glad we have, religious colleges, for example, that have a special mission and their posture toward freedom of speech is necessarily going to be different. But uh, large public universities and sort of general purpose uh, universities like Stanford are not partisan institutions, not religious institutions. They should be and usually are open to a variety of points of view. Let's jump into one of the controversies on universities like Stanford's. Free speech in the context of a Stanford no longer has the aspect that it did maybe in our youth of liberal students protesting or a liberal speaker protesting. Often the free speech comes up because there is a outside conservative speaker and maybe even a far-right speaker that someone's uh, invited. And the opposition here comes from a kind of a, a liberal majority or a liberal minority. It's, it's really quite a turnaround from the good old days when, uh, <laughs> uh, when, when, uh, when we were young, right? Because uh, back then it tended to be you know, students expressing themselves often quite offensively right being shut down by the universities and the, that led to the to the conflict today the conflict is much more likely to be students representing a fairly large majority on campus who then go to the administration to ask them to shut down minority voices by minority here i mean typically religious or or political minorities and and oftentimes i think quite comically uh, so there was a huge kerfluffle at Yale over the uh, university sending out a message as to what Halloween costumes were appropriate for students to wear. And when uh, some professors there said they should decide for themselves what Halloween costumes are appropriate, they then get mobbed and shouted at and accused of being racists and ended up leaving the university. Well, I don't know about you, Joe, but I think when I was in college, if the college administrators had told us what Halloween costumes we should wear, we'd have gone nuts and everybody would have been wearing the most offensive Halloween costumes to the university we could possibly have done. Because 
I think there was a spirit of rebellion in those days. One of the weird things about the free speech controversies today is that they're not animated by a spirit of rebellion. They're animated by a spirit of conformity and the desire to stamp out uh, people with dissenting voices. Well, but, you know, I I just want to press you a little bit on this, Michael, because the letter, as I understood it, the original letter at Yale just said, when you're thinking about what you're going to dress as as for Halloween, think about how your classmates might feel about stuff, which doesn't strike me as a terrible thing to say because it doesn't strike me as a terrible thing to do to think, you know, should I dress up in blackface for Halloween? I understand that maybe the university shouldn't punish you if you do, but part of what we're trying to do is educate people mm-hmm. as members of a society where there are people of very different views and the question, do you want to use a lot of your time to be deliberately offensive to your classmates does seem like something worth talking about. So I don't think those scandal there was the original message which, as you say, may have been perfectly legitimate. It's that when professors there raise questions about right. it, they then get mobbed in, a, in an extra – I've seen them yeah. film clips of it in a terrible way and essentially driven off campus. That's, I think, the scandal. You know, I want to bring up a Stanford incident that came up, which is a little bit different. I think maybe even more typical. One student organization invites a speaker – And the speaker has, in his past, made statements that could easily be read as offensive to Muslims. I mean, I read some of those statements. I would say those statements, at least in the context I read them, seem somewhat offensive. How do we think about this kind of a a, a situation? How do we balance here? Do we balance it all, or do we say that's okay? I think we just say that's okay. The better thing to do if you think that a speaker is offensive is stay away and don't give him a lot of publicity. I don't believe that the speaker would have attracted very much of an audience. I think the whole point of the speaker was to try to – of the people inviting the speaker was to try to create a commotion and they got exactly what they wanted. Free speech is actually valuable for more than one reason. One reason is so speakers can get out their point of view, but another reason is it's actually a very calming device for a free society. If all of us know that we are free to speak, then there's no temptation to come out in force and try to shut other people down. I think it's a more peaceful as well as a as a freer way to run a, a university or a society. This is Stanford Legal, mm-hmm. and today we're talking with our colleague Michael McConnell about free speech on campus. I want to pick up on something you just said, Michael, about staying away as a very effective way of dealing with things, which is if you compare the recent episode Joe was talking about to an episode that happened a couple of years back where the Westboro Baptist Church, which is not really a church exactly and certainly not Baptist, came to campus. These are the people who go to demonstrate at military funerals saying that the reason why U.S. service members have been killed is God hates the United States because the United States has, among other things, recognized same-sex marriage. And the university sent around a note to people saying, we're letting them come on campus, but we urge everybody to simply stay away. And nobody showed up. And they were here. They did their demonstration for a half hour, and then they had to leave. And I think you're right, Michael, that that was a much more effective way, perhaps, of dealing with the issue. That is, nobody has taken away from that anything about Westboro Baptist coming to Stanford and 
outraging people. In fact, I didn't even know they came. Surprise. And isn't that good? I think we had another case where someone came on campus and a group deliberately attended and then made a show of walking out. And I guess that raises a question, to what extent is that simply another exercise of free speech? To what extent is that getting into heckling or preventing free speech? How do we draw the line there? This is really difficult, and I, I think it's the most important question in practice. And again, this is not strictly speaking a legal question. This is as much a pedagogical question as anything else. How does a university deal with situations in which you have controversial speech on one side and people who want to protest it on the other? Because protesting controversial speech is just as much protected free speech as the other. But there is a line, and the line I can describe but it's very hard to apply. And the line is that the counter-protesters should not be allowed to do things that effectively shut down the original speech. They can protest it, but they don't have a right to prevent it. So the easy example of this is you know, tearing down posters is not a legitimate form of counter-speech. Shouting a speaker down is not a legitimate form of counter-speech. The example you mention. I think is an interest. The facts here might matter because some say, and I really don't know exactly what happened, but some say this was an event which was ticketed. That is, only a certain number of seats were available and students had to get tickets in advance and that there was an organized movement by opponents of the speaker to get tickets to go and then to leave but what that then meant is that there were a number of other people who would have liked to have hear, heard the speaker who were not able to come. But of course, if they had simply <laughs> gone and sat there with earplugs in, it would have had exactly the same effect, right? That's right. So it's just a, you know, people who are not going to pay attention are depriving you of an audience of people who might. But well, yes, I think yeah. that's the same case. Yeah, it's it's less dramatic, but I would analyze it the same way. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Michael McConnell, our colleague at Stanford, about free speech on campus. Michael, I want to bring up a related point, and this has to deal more with social conformity than free speech, but I want your thoughts on it, and I want you to tell me if I'm right in that statement. You know, I'm a psychologist, and there are all these famous experiments uh, that show that we are social animals, and in one of the experiments, for example, Someone is filling out a form and there's some smoke coming in. And if they're alone, they see smoke and they leave. And then if they're placed with Confederates who stay in their seats when smoke comes in, they stay too. They don't even save themselves if nobody else is saving themselves. So the application here is political views. And if you're in a conservative environment, we know that social conformity, which is what psychologists label this behavior, tends to silence non-conservative views. And if you're in a liberal environment, the same thing happens. And I wonder if we see this, because we operate generally in a liberal environment, not exclusively. Do we see this in our classroom where conservative views, even for liberal students that might have a conservative view on a matter, are getting silenced. And how do we put that in the context of free speech? Or does it happen? Well, I think it certainly happens. I think 
very few, at least very few conservative students on campus would have would have the slightest doubt uh, about it. I don't think we can do anything about just the sheer weight of numbers. This is, you know, this is the the way it is. But as universities, we actually do we intervene in this process. So, but we intervene selectively, and I think universities need to become more self-conscious and thoughtful about about the ideological, the political side of this. Because when minority students, racial minority, sexual minority, alienage minority uh, students are treated disrespectfully by their fellow students, we are, uh, I think all responsible professors are very attentive to that and we we intervene. It's all, It's not always easy, but and sometimes we do it clumsily and poorly, but we see it as our job as professors to make sure that that the classroom is an inclusive place for uh, for people of all of those dimensions, but not so much when it comes to the expression of conservative views. Those students are on their own, and I think in many classrooms, conservative students have concluded that they should just keep their heads down and their mouths shut because they suffer such social attack and with no support from the university. So what I think is one of the things that Stanford and other universities should do uh, is to make professors more aware of the problem and maybe uh, just bring it to bring it to the level of consciousness and put it on their agenda for something that responsible professors ought to be uh, concerned about. We'll be back with more from our guest Michael McConnell about free speech on campus next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. Learning about your rights and responsibilities in a changing world from some of the top legal experts in the country. You're listening to Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman, and we are talking with our colleague Michael McConnell about uh, free speech on campus. And Michael, you mentioned to me a stunning survey that you had read recently about students at Dartmouth. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, this was just in the last few days. And I think this is interesting because sometimes we think maybe these episodes that make the headlines are interesting, but maybe they don't really reflect a real pro- a serious problem on campus. So uh, I assume Dartmouth is typical elite small uh, a campus, nothing different there. And the students, the survey asked the question whether, the, and I'm quoting from it, the climate on Dartmouth's campus prevents some people from saying things they believe because others might find them offensive. And 81% of the students at Dartmouth said yes to that. Incidentally, 94% of the Republican identifying students said a yes to that. So students apparently recognize that their fellow students are not free to say what they want. Now that is not because – maybe some of that is Dartmouth rules. I doubt it very much. My guess is almost all of this uh, is social pressure. And the social pressure is a problem. Why? So I think it's a so, it's because universities are training people – for life in a much more diverse world than Dartmouth or Stanford and to be good citizens. And I don't believe that an American 
can really survive as a diverse free republic unless uh, we have some ability to talk to one another. And if young people are the obviously the future of the country and if we're educating groups of students to be accustomed to a world in which some people have a right to speak and other people don't and where they themselves are really not exposed to a diversity of points of view, I think we are not doing our proper job as colleges and universities. And, and I think that makes perfect sense to me if we're talking about people's beliefs on policy issues people who believe that abortion is murder or people who believe that uh, transgender people should be allowed to use whichever bathroom is the bathroom of the group they identify with. I understand why we think it's important people be able to express those views even if people on the other side disagree with them. And I sometimes wonder about these, these polls because there's also the things people believe that maybe we just don't think there's a huge value in their saying. I mean mm -hmm. part of what growing up is – about is learning that you have some things that would just better to not share. So I take it the worry is it's that former, not that latter. That is saying to people, people of your religion just disgust me. Well, if you know that people aren't going to like that, maybe you shouldn't be saying that anyway. So help me a little bit with how we figure out when this is a good thing and when this is a bad thing that people don't feel comfortable saying things they believe. So in terms of the survey instrument, you know, I don't know. I think it would be a very good thing for Stanford and for other uh, universities to enlist our best you know, experts in survey techniques and do a serious climate survey to find out whether this is true and also to probe a little bit more deeply because, Pam, you raise a, a very good question. Beliefs is a very general term. But there are a lot of perfectly legitimate debates in our society which I think our experience shows – can cause some people to feel offense. Right. I mean even at a place like Stanford Law School where we teach, there were a few months ago posters quoting students out of context but where they were commenting on a wide variety of matters, um, minimum wage laws, uh, immigration laws, uh, uh, criminal justice uh, issues, uh, even tort damage calculations. And the quotes were up on the posters effectively identified. This is a racist statement. Well, I can tell you this is not the way to start a conversation about any of those issues. If you know students are going to be accused of being racist, which is one of the most potent charges we have in our society today, uh, they'd rather just keep quiet. This is Stanford Legal. And today we're talking with our colleague Michael McConnell about free speech on campus. Jeff? You know, I wanted to pick up uh, to try to – on something Pam said, to try to put it in a little less ominous light, though I don't disagree with any of your statements, Michael. Maybe this intolerance of opposing viewpoints and suppression of them is also, as it happens, tied with a desire to be very accompanying of viewpoints of people who are previously marginalized. It has this perverse aspect of marginalizing then the people who are the previous marginalizers, maybe, or that's putting it very strongly, of course. So maybe there's, there's something positive on it that we'd want to keep 
while getting rid of the stifling aspect. That is, worrying a lot about how someone from a marginalized, poor community, a racial minority might feel is really all to the good. And we ought to think about that, but we have to balance that with free discussion. Yeah, I think that's probably... I think that's probably so. I think that's entirely right. In fact, I think there are two things that make this more complicated maybe than uh, we've been saying. Part of it, I think, is that as the tables have turned, that the current victors, their groups or the victims not long ago, often have a kind of to the victors belong the spoils. It's, you know, our turn to to be the censors. This is, I think, not good. It's human and understandable, you know. But I'd like to see more of a Nelson Mandela spirit about the uh, about this rather than a, a, a Robespierre uh, a standard about it. But the other thing is, uh, is I, I is that sensitivities um, still exist. So it's not as if we're actually in a world with no current difficulties. Uh, with uh, with race and sex and, and sexuality and other uh, minority views. Those sensitivities still exist. Um, and there are ways in which opinions can be expressed. If you think about a topic like uh, abortion or affirmative action or uh, transgender bathrooms or uh, any of these uh, things, uh, opinions can be expressed in ways which are you know, quite hurtful. And I do think that everyone could be could profit from a little bit more thought about how we communicate. But it's important that the that we talk about how to communicate rather than to shut down whole sets of ideas on the ground that those ideas are themselves sort of ipso facto illegitimate. You know, this has been such a great conversation. We had all sorts of other topics we were thinking of covering, trigger warnings for one. But I think our time is now running out. So what I'm left with is the task for some of us, which is to think at the university level how we can structure things so that we're respectful to people in difficult situations, but we manage conversations. May I just say this brings us back to the very first question, which is how does the First Amendment apply on campuses? And it completely applies, but there is so much more universities need to do than just obey the First Amendment because I think we are engaged in educating people and one of the things we need to be educating them in is how to communicate with one another. That is not an obligation of the government out in the streets. That's something that we in the universities have a, have a unique obligation about. Thank you for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121. This has been Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of it, listen on demand online or with the Sirius XM app.